All right, this is the Coast to Coast Combat Hour. Uh, we're recording this on Sunday, April 19th. Um, doing it a little early this week. Uh, we, we Just because of the time that we were able to get uh, Dr. Lucas joining us, friend of the podcast, uh, serves as a ringside physician, also trains in jiu-jitsu. Um, so we wanted to get a, a, a true pro's take in the, that's in the medical field on what's going on with moving forward with combat sports the pros and the cons of doing it. Dr. Lewis, how are you, sir? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Uh, so one of the things, uh, obviously, folks are, are concerned with is, uh, as we near May 9th and the UFC is insistent on, on moving forward and stuff, and I know you served as, as a ringside physician for their events and stuff. If you could just, uh, from your from your point of view, like wh- what do you see as, as – uh, positives and negatives of them trying to move forward uh, in the sport the way that they are during the pandemic? Yeah, so I think it kind of depends on exactly what their plans for moving forward are. And those seem to be pretty unclear. You know, they they had talked about this mysterious fight island that may or may not still be a possibility. And then it turned out they are actually planning on having an event at Tachi Palace, which is not too far away from uh, some major metropolitan areas. So that probably wasn't well thought out in I think, as Matt has pointed out before, they picked the wrong state to test the government in because, um, you know, Newsom had been pretty clear that he didn't want uh, large gatherings to be present where some other states, Florida in particular now, seem to be a little bit more positive in that direction. They're still having WWE events. So I I think that um, the UFC has a chance of getting this done, but they have to be able to do a couple of things. So the first would be, They've got to find a, you know, a, a regulatory body that's willing to let this happen uh, in the area they regulate. And they've got to have a, a well thought out and a, a, a well thought out plan and a plan that they can describe well about how they're going to keep the people who are participating in the event as safe as possible. What sort of testing, if any, they're going to do beforehand and then what their plans are for uh, the other people who need to be there. You know, the, the WWE has been successful in having events, but they don't need quite as many people around the athletes for the WWE as they typically do for a UFC event. You know, you don't have the corners, the number of physicians, the number of trainers, and all that kind of stuff that they have for a, a UFC event. So that's going to be their big stumbling block is trying to figure out who really needs to be there mm-hmm. and um, how they're going to be able to do, do everything they need to do to assure the regulatory bodies that they're doing this as safe as possible. If if they were to come to South Carolina, would you would that be something that you would be interested in working or would you if you had the option, would you withhold from from being a part of that right now? So, I mean, if they came to South Carolina, as long as they satisfied the first condition that we talked about, you know, they had a, a, a decent plan for how they were going to try to keep everybody safe. In particular, if they planned on having it in an arena without fans and just doing it for broadcast and were to do um not necessarily uh, coronavirus testing, but just I would probably be happy with symptom testing, you know, proving that everybody that's there like has their temperature taken every day for three or four days leading up to the event. And as they come into the arena, I think that the the danger to the folks participating would be relatively small. And so I'd, I'd be willing to participate. But with with one major caveat, as you probably saw, the Association of Ringside Physicians had came out and said that they don't think fight sports should be happening now. And as long as the physician bodies that um, 
you know, like like the AAP or the American Academy of Internal Medicine or anything like that. And the, the Association of Ringside Physicians would fit in that category as well, as long as they are not in support of events moving on. I think there'd be pretty high likelihood that any physician who took part in an event in that sort of a setting would be sanctioned somehow. You know, I like fight sports as much as the next guy. But if the if the brains that that uh, are you know really thinking about this from an objective manner think that it's a bad idea and, and they say so, then I wouldn't participate under those circumstances. Um, you mentioned the Association of uh, Ringside Physicians. I saw that um, I think it was uh, Eric McCracken that runs the Combat Sports Law blog. Uh, yep. He said that they they canceled uh, some event that they had coming up uh, soon. Uh, did you, uh, the, is that kind of like an indication as to where we're headed and what we should and shouldn't be doing? Uh, you know, they canceled their event for the same reason that it most, you know, like the AAP and the other major physician organizations that I either a member of or follow have all canceled their events. And most hospital systems have actually asked their physicians not to travel outside the immediate area where they work for any reason and certainly not for the quote unquote CME, the continuing medical education, mm-hmm. because it just doesn't make a lot of sense. If you're going to like, if the association of ringside physicians has their meeting, you know, say it was scheduled for next week in Las Vegas, if 50 doctors from all over the country meet and they sit in one room, they're going to be shaking hands. And, you know, there's no way to social distance through that. And if it turns out that somebody has coronavirus now, that means that pretty much everybody who's in that room is going to have to quarantine. It's going to be a big deal. And in the the other medical specialties, it's an even more important thing. I mean, there's some medical specialties that are not that big like pediatric cardiothoracic surgery, there's probably only a hundred or so people that do that across the country. If you get a bunch of those people in the same place at the same time right now and somebody tests positive or the coronavirus makes an unwelcome opinion, it's going to change medical care for quite a while. So I think the fact that they canceled their meeting is definitely indicative that they don't think that uh, group gatherings is a great idea right now. But as you've seen just in the popular media, the models are changing day by day. So people's opinions about what is medically safe and what isn't is, is changing very rapidly as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess my thing is, I mean, from a totally uneducated standpoint, just watching, like you say, what we see in the media and and talking to people, do you think that, I I mean, I, I have a hard time in my head reasoning how having an event, whether it's golf, tennis, you know, obviously uh, bigger, you know, when you have a bunch of players, like a football would be different because all of a sudden you've got a hundred people at minimum uh, basically involved, but like a MMA fight, a boxing match, how can that be any dangerous than the fact that I'm being like tunneled uh, basically into the only grocery store within like a a two mile radius of my house? Uh, I feel like when I go there, there's 150 people in a grocery store, whereas you could basically run an MMA event with probably like 15. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard that argument a lot, uh, both for MMA events and then also people who want to open their BJJ or uh, striking gym back open. They're like, well, you know, we only have 15 people to train here. I go to the grocery store and there's 150 people there. But the, the counter argument to that, it's not that the actual event itself is more dangerous because, you know, you're right. Numbers are numbers. If you put and, and you would hope that it a, it a, if they did have a UFC event, say they did it here in South Carolina in a closed arena and there's, you know, 150 people there and they physically space out relatively well, your actual numbers of exposures during that event is probably lower than it would be if you go to the grocery store to get milk and eggs. 
the counter argument is you need to go to the grocery store to get milk and eggs, whether you have the UOC event or not. So mm-hmm. adding in one more uh, exposure just adds up. It's just like the, the big thing around here has been the, the home improvement stores. I don't know if you have this in your areas, but they've been as labeled as essential businesses because they sell stuff that people actually need. They also sell things that people don't necessarily need. And if, if you drive by Home Depot or Lowe's uh, the past couple of weeks, they've been, their parking lots have been literally overflowing with people. So people have been, you know, raising a lot of alarm about, hey, how come they can do that, but I can't go to my office with five people? How come I can't do this? How come I can't do this other thing? How come I can't go to the gym? And, and that's the, the general idea is that the, the, the idea of having only essential businesses open is those are things that people have to do. And then if they're doing other stuff on top of that, it's just raising their exposure. So in short, I would agree with your general idea that it's not more dangerous per se to have a UFC event than it is to go to the grocery store or go grab takeout from the Chick-fil-A with the, you know, line around the corner. It's just the, the cumulative effects. And I, I think the, the thing that's changed, at least right where we are in South Carolina, is the numbers have changed pretty significantly and the forecast models have changed pretty significantly, even just in the past three or four days, yeah. such that it seems pretty clear that here in South Carolina, we're over at least the initial peak. We've come nowhere close to overwhelming the medical system. I mean, all the hospitals, including the hospital system I work out, work at, are well below their normals, much less anywhere near uh, surge capacity. So that's what's leading people to be a little bit more optimistic about getting things open. And now hospitals around us, including our system, are starting to do elective procedures again. The governor opened up boat ramps again yesterday. They're planning on opening other businesses, retail shops on Tuesday. Uh, and it looks like they're aiming at uh, very early May and certainly by early June kind of being as back to as close as possible to business as usual. So as that as those sort of numbers take off, I think you'll see some uh, some uh, regulatory bodies be a little bit more optimistic about the, the possibilities of having an MMA event. Yeah, I mean. So it seems like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, I use my own governor as an example. He's kind of waiting to see what everyone else does. So it looks like, it looks like that's, uh, that's probably, uh, like you said, depending on, on, on who's running what, uh, that's probably the, the take some people are going to take. But as far as like, uh, you got a lot of armchair, uh, and I always mess up this word. So, uh, <laughs> excuse me if I mess it up right now, but you have a lot of armchair epidemiologists, um, that that have their own takes on on uh, as far as like you know how the how the virus has always been around or how it's going to run itself out and you know or or uh, you know this whole thing about uh, herd immunity and things like that. What you as a as a medical professional as a doctor that that's in that served as a ringside physician, how do you uh, respond to that when you see it? Is is it scoffable or, or what's your take? Yeah, I mean it's funny and sad at the same time, and it's it's just sort of a social media phenomenon as you know if you look at like the mma sites there's tons of people who have never even thought about training in any way shape or form but yet have tons of technical advice to give people on how they should be doing their jujitsu how they should be striking and the same thing happens in medicine there's people that don't you know they the the last thing they they knew about biology was something they learned when they were in high school but they're willing to debate 
people that have spent their literally their entire lives learning about a particular topic. So yeah, I've been very surprised the number of Facebook people I follow that were epidemiologists that I never knew. And, <laughs> you know, that, that, that may come in handy moving in the future. And then uh, the, the thing that's been most surprising about that, or I, I guess I shouldn't say most surprising, but that's been most frustrating is seeing a lot of people um, who have self-contradictory positions. You know, they're, they're saying that this has been around forever, but yet no one really has it. But yet they think that herd immunity exists because there's such a large portion of people that are asymptomatic. And it's like the, the math on that doesn't, you know, work out really well. The issue, though, is that we don't know yeah. as much about this as we do some other things. You know, people, the the comparisons to the flu are, are particularly frustrating, but they get used. But we know a lot about the flu. We know where the flu typically comes from. We know the patterns of how it goes around the world. We know the communities that it typically affects the worst. And more importantly, we know how to treat it and we know how to, to decrease its transmission. Where with this, we know very little about it. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that they didn't even know that it was a coronavirus. I mean, that, that wasn't, you know, eons ago in time. It was within the last calendar year. And now they know it's a coronavirus. There's people working on a vaccine for it. There's been a lot of treatments postulated, none that have really turned out to be the panacea they were hoping for yet. But um, and, and that is reflected in the models. You know, you, you go back a week or two ago, people were still talking about in the best case scenario, we're going to have 100 to 200,000 Americans die from this. Mm -hmm. And now it's a week later. And I'm not aware of any model that's currently predicting that. Unfortunately, those models can change in both directions, but the more and more we learn about this and we see the effects that we've had with the social distancing, even in places like near you, Ed, where you know, New York City was overwhelmed not too long ago, that situation is rapidly improving um, and the, the, the concern about the lack of surge capacity hasn't really arisen many other places, New York City, a little bit in a hospital in Detroit. But once you move outside of those big urban centers, most hospitals are, are well beneath that. So as, as we get more and more information, the models get more and more accurate, people will start feeling a little bit more um, confident in the numbers they're spouting. And I think you'll see the expert opinions from actual experts start coalescing towards a common uh, idea. You bring up the vaccine, and I, I got into a conversation with a relative last night about that. And um, he's extremely optimistic that there's going to be a vaccine. And while I am happy to hear the optimistic talk about it, I also kind of tend to be the devil's advocate in a lot of situations. And I'm not so, a, I lot. Mean, <laughs> a lot, a lot of situations. Um, I, I like to kind of get angles from, from all sides, but what, um, as a, as a doctor, what's your perspective? What do you think the odds of us really finding a vaccine for this are? I just feel like we have a ton of stuff where we don't have vaccines for. We don't have an AIDS vaccine. We don't have a common cold vaccine. We don't have a really have a flu vaccine. We have shots so you can hit some strains um, if they guess it. But, um, I mean, is it over-optimistic to think that we're actually going to come up with a vaccine that's going to wipe this out? Yeah, it's, it's really hard to answer that. So, I mean, it's entirely possible. And there's a couple of advantages we have towards developing a vaccine to this coronavirus compared to some other things, particularly people always mention the common cold. But, you know, the issue with the common cold is that there's literally hundreds or probably thousands of different viruses. Some of them are coronaviruses and rhinoviruses and adenoviruses that cause the common cold. So they, they can't make a single vaccine that's going to hit all of those where it looks like coronavirus has some pretty stable structural points that would be good targets for a vaccine. 
but there's a bunch of steps between identifying places that are good targets for a vaccine and actually having a vaccine that both works and is safe. Um, my biggest concern is, you know, so far, there's still not great confidence in the medical community that getting an infection with this particular coronavirus leads to any long-term lasting immunity. So if, if getting an infection with a coronavirus doesn't lead to lasting immunity, then it's exceedingly unlikely they're going to come up with a vaccine that works for it. And then even if it turns out that you do get long-term immunity from this, they still have to develop a vaccine that's both safe and effective. And it takes a while to get that figured out. You know, they they worked on vaccines for coronaviruses with both SARS and the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome that came out. And those stopped not because they couldn't do it, but because the problem went away. So funding dried up where it doesn't seem like funding drying up for this is very likely to happen. So I think we may see a vaccine at some point, but it's not likely to be real soon. And that's been the other thing that's been interesting about the conversations you hear online or in forums is, you know, there's the the typical subset of people who are just anti-vaccine and you hear about, you know, Bill Gates is going to come up with a vaccine that's going to actually kill you or put a microchip in your arm to, tra- you know, track you and things like that. And people are arguing about things that don't even exist yet. I have, have said that right now having discussions, second order discussions about whether you would take a coronavirus vaccine is kind of like asking, would you accept a unicorn as a birthday gift next year? Because (laughs) it's not going to happen at this point in time. So we can argue all about the pros and cons of having a 150 pound horned animal running around your backyard. But the fact of the matter is it's, it's all theoretical at this point. So until uh, a particular group comes out and says, Hey, we've got this vaccine that we think will work and we're going to start moving it into actual human trials. It's really hard to have any, any great insight as to whether it's something that I'd be willing to take myself or whether I'd recommend it to patients or how likely it is to work. So yeah, yeah, well, real quick, you're, you're, uh, you, uh, you're, you're, you got to be looking forward to then my documentary on Ed and doing his unicorn King. <laughs> Unicorn King. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I just took me a minute to get that. <laughs> don't you know that that's that's I don't I don't I don't that's the worst thing ever. But uh, anyway, um, I prefer to do a documentary on my on how horrible my hair is going to be if, if if my barber don't open soon. But um, uh, one of the things that that Matt mentioned that made me think of it because like so. You, you see the UFC planning on moving forward with May 9th and all these Fight Island and, and being able to string uh, together a bunch of events, but they still haven't even gotten the okay yet from uh, from uh, the Athletic Commission or anything like that. So jump jumping into to trying to cycle out events so soon, I mean, we've seen fighters in the past on day, fight day or day of the weigh-ins, guys get you know flu-like symptoms and stuff like that right now during a pandemic if something like that happens that could potentially shut down a whole event and 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 any fighters and and staff associated with it right yeah for sure and that's the other issue with having an event is the training that needs to happen beforehand you know we're not talking about golf where you know people can just kind of fly in get their clubs there and go out on a course and and play they got to be in tip-top shape which means they have to be training with somebody i mean i'm i'm sure you saw what happened to gio martinez out in california and he had a couple guys over to his his academy to film some techniques and they left and they got a a summons from the police for Mm -hmm. violating the stay-at-home order so 
it's going to be really hard to figure out how they can get people someplace where they can train and, and have their skills where they need to be, get their weight where it needs to be and, and be in the kind of cardio they need to have to be able to fight successfully. So there's, there's a lot of steps that need to take place before they're going to be able to pull off an event. Out here, uh, you know, Ed's got the population in, in New York and New Jersey. My big population group, uh, while still a couple hours away, is Las Vegas. And uh, I guess one of the the most depressing things for me is reading some of the stuff that they're talking about this uh, virus is going to do to the future, basically, of Las Vegas and and a lot of uh, a lot of things. I mean, the gambling is one thing. They're talking about there'll never be buffets again. I don't eat the buffets in Vegas a lot, but it, it's a, definitely a staple, <laughs> yeah. something that, you know, it, it's in movies. It's it's a it's known the Las Vegas food buffet. They're saying those will never be around again. Um, they're talking about, you know, six feet between people at events and uh, and they're saying no, no sporting events. And, and I mean, the governor of California, who's made a lot of big, you know, guesses on stuff is saying no sporting events for like 18 months with crowds. I mean, from a doctor's perspective, is that, is that real? I mean, are we really looking at almost two years of not being able to go to a, a sporting event? You know, this is definitely a guess as well, you know, cause we're back kind of talking about unicorns because we don't know what yeah. the future holds. But one thing that is been a constant throughout time is that people have a short memory overall. And this is not the first pandemic. And thank God, it looks like it's going to be nowhere near the worst. And yet every single time, very quickly after the pandemic threat went away, people very quickly went back to their old way of living. I mean, I don't think you're going to suddenly see a mass migration from cities back to people living on little communal farms in small groups and never traveling out. I think it's highly unlikely you're going to see sporting events. I would not be at all surprised to see the buffets in, in Vegas open. Uh, not too long after, if not at the same time, that Vegas kind of gets back to their normal. Is people just, you know, those things exist because people like them and, and want to do them. And I, I think the idea that there's going to be years where there's no sports, particularly not any sports anywhere and no crowds of any size is almost inconceivable. I mean, look what happened in Florida. They had people on spring break were packing the beaches just like normal at the beginning of the pandemic. And then they opened up some beaches the other day and they flew a news helicopter over one of the beaches like 15 minutes after it opened. And there was already a couple hundred, if not a couple thousand people back on the beach. So uh, I don't think you're going to see a, a, a huge change in people's habits. There'll be some people who change their habits. But I don't think it's going to be the majority of society. Do you think like, um, you know, cause I, I know the last time we had you on, you had talked about how how when you do get when you do get tapped to serve as the ringside physician for events that that it, it's not as frequent you know it's it's you know it's not a hot spot for for MMA or combat sports or uh, do you think that's going to change as far as because you if you like obviously New York and New Jersey we're we're probably not going to have anything for a long time maybe even a year but do you think I mean um is it kind of like a good sign for states like yours in your area where it's like okay if, if, if things are really going to get going a do you do you want that to happen uh, obviously you want it to happen for the fighters and stuff as a fan but i mean it, there's a downside to it too isn't there uh there, there could be you know i think that our state has done a good job so far of, of making somewhat rational decisions and he was the our governor was relatively slow to shut everything down and didn't really do it until 
there was a pretty clear consensus of the the actual epidemiologists around the country that we had to enact some sort of social distancing or there was going to be major problems. And then he's already, as soon as the numbers look like the the peak has passed and things weren't going to be a huge burden on the hospital system is already sort of making steps towards opening back up. So I think it's perfectly likely that you'll see some events take place in states that have not typically been hotspots because where the hotspots are also happen to be places that have the demographics that make coronavirus be a, mm-hmm. a, a much bigger issue. And if you're going to be relying mostly on pay-per-view, because the, I think that the first couple of events, no matter where they are, are going to end up being um, empty arenas with no actual live spectators there doesn't matter where you hold them you can hold it in siberia and you can stream from there just as well as you could stream from las vegas you don't need a big arena you just need a place that's that's willing to help you out so i I think you'll see the ufc run towards the states that are opening up most quickly so i think florida in particular since they've had wwe events and continue to have them is very likely going to be a place you see the ufc pop up very uh very soon at least stateside and then Foreign foreign countries, there's both pros and cons. You know, the pros are some of the foreign countries aren't going to have the same kind of social distancing requirements that exist in the U.S. and their regulatory bodies may be easier to work with. Mm-hmm. But then there's the issue of a lot of the fighters still live in the U.S. and the certain states and, and possibly the federal government may not be real thrilled about having Americans flying from the U.S. to some sporting event someplace or more importantly, coming back from the sporting event into the United States. So. It'll be interesting to see how how that plays out. Yeah, I'm just wondering because like down the road, if you look at, I mean, I remember growing up, you know, they used to call Madison Square Garden the, the mecca of boxing, and then Las Vegas became the capital, you know, fight town capital of the world. So I'm wondering if there's just, you know, over time, if that's going to change depending on who can start holding events, you know, the old fashioned way first. Yeah, and I think it actually might. And again, it's all speculation, but I think that um, in the near term even if there's not a medical reason for people to avoid crowds, there's going to be a significant portion of the population, probably mm-hmm. not that significant portion of the fight population, fight fan population, since it seems like looking online, the majority of fight fans would go to a huge event right now if they could. Mm-hmm. But um, I think you'll see portions of the population that aren't wanting to go to live venues uh, in the near future. So we may see a, a trend more towards, uh, events that stream well as opposed to having them in, in huge arenas that can hold large numbers of people at least yeah, short-term. I, I think that that's probably really likely i i guess my my you know it's it, to me it almost seems like it'll be hard to do it piecemeal as far as opening up states that's where i kind of am a little strange because i've already got friends that are going hey if arizona opens up golf courses we're we're going to arizona um, I feel like that'll be the same case like if, you know, where I'm at, if they open up Del Mar Beach, if L.A.'s in complete shutdown, everybody from the hot zones in L.A. are just going to come down to Del Mar and go to the beach. If they have MMA events in South Carolina or Washington, D.C., let's say, you're just going to get a ton of people from the hot zones in New York, I would think, traveling down the coast, even if all the way down to Florida. So is there – I mean, obviously, this is all unicorn stuff again, but uh, what – is there any – Unless, I mean, how how low do these numbers do you think they have to get for this to become something where it doesn't have to, we're not so worried about it? I mean, or is it something that we're just always going to worry about until we have a vaccine? Yeah. So, you know, I'm reticent to say that um, 
we need to wait until there's a vaccine because I'm still not confident that a vaccine is coming. And if it is, it's probably at least a year or so away. I mean, I think even Bill Gates said that he's thinking it's like 1.7 years away or something like that. So I mean, it's it's going to be a while. The people seem to have moved the goalposts a little bit about what social distancing was about. You know, everybody started social distancing and the, the hashtag was flatten the curve. The whole idea was not that social distancing was going to make less people get coronavirus. It was just going to make it so that less people got coronavirus all at the same time so we wouldn't overwhelm the hospitals. Well, it seems like in most places, with a couple of noticeable notable exceptions, we've accomplished that. So that's why some states are moving towards opening things back up. And as the number of coronavirus cases go up, that will hopefully, again, assuming that if you get coronavirus, you're then immune to it, will make the 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 R number, the R not number of the number of people that each person with a coronavirus case infects go down. And as that number goes down, the chance of there being a sudden surge of sick patients goes down. So as that as that number looks like it's going down and we see states uh, that have hospital systems that have plenty of surge capacity left, people, I think, will start becoming more and more comfortable with going out in, in, in groups, and you'll see things start trending back to normal in those states. And as that starts happening, so I'll use South Carolina, since it seems like we're on the fast track in that direction, if a week, two weeks, three weeks from now, South Carolina is opening back up and we don't see a huge resurgence in cases, you'll start seeing more and more pressure in the states that are a little bit slower to open back up to do the same thing. Because people will be like, hey, look, you know, South Carolina and North Dakota and Florida and these other states are doing it, not having a problem. Why are we still not being able to do it, what we want to do as far as going to work and having events and that kind of thing? See, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you, because obviously you, some being in the medical field, uh, you probably have a better... Uh, you probably have a better idea of where to look for these forecasts and, and resources and things like that. Cause you know, I mean, and, and this is me from a personal perspective. Every time I talk to my mom, you know, she thinks the world is ending, you know, listening to the, I mean, uh, there's a lot of doom and gloom in the headlines and I know there's, so there's numbers that back that up, but it looks like as far as like a rate of recovery and things like that, don't get uh, focused on that much. So as, as someone like yourself, that's a medical professional. Where do you go? I mean, like I said, I had the John Hopkins thing up on this podcast uh, a couple of episodes ago, and that's one that I go to. I, I kind of really don't watch the news as far as uh, updates on, on the pandemic. I just look at that because I'm like, I don't want to hear, you know, reasons for me to, to go out and buy uh, toilet paper and things like that. So right. <clears throat> what, do you, what do you use? Where do you go? So a couple of places, I mean, the, I'm most concerned about what's going on locally, really regionally. So sort of in the Western North Carolina and, and most of South Carolina and get those numbers from the South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control. Our hospital system actually has a, a virtual meeting a couple of times a day where all the medical directors of the different departments listen in on kind of what the numbers look like what the testing looks like, how many tests are being done, what percentage of those tests are positive. Is there any trend they see in the testing? You know, like, do they see a lot of young people getting it? Mm -hmm. Is there a particular nursing home or a particular hospital or a particular zip code where there seems like there's a problem? And then what the hospital vacancy rates are like, how many ICU beds are available, how many ventilators are available? Are we discharging more COVID patients than we're admitting? That kind of stuff. 
and those numbers are probably available to the general okay. public, but it would be relatively locally. So I would look in your local paper for uh, reports from whatever your state's Department of Health and Environmental Control happens to be called. And then for the, the bigger picture, uh, the CDC has fairly reliable numbers. Now, of course, there's conspiracy theories that, you know, if you die in a car accident, they're going to call that a coronavirus death. You know, I'm sure yeah. you've seen that stuff floating around in Facebook. But yeah. without without those kind of concerns withstanding, the numbers that the CDC gathers are probably the most reliable for the country. And then you may be aware of the website. It's uh, Worldometers or something like that, or World Odometer. It's W-R-O-L-D-O-M-E-T-E-R-S. And it's just a running tally of not just in the United States, but across the world, the number of known coronavirus cases, the number of people that are, are currently infected versus people who've either died or who've recovered. And they have a, a, a number there of how many tests have been done, and it's by country. And then in some of the countries, you can zoom down to individual region. And those numbers, it's not immediately clear to me exactly how they're amassing them, but they're from public health authorities. So they're relatively uh, relatively reliable. And they're the ones when you see numbers get uh, announced from national news media, they seem to reflect what that particular website says. So I think that they're using the same database. Yeah, just kind of jump to an MMA side of stuff here. Uh, first of all, uh, I saw on Facebook that uh, contender UFC contender series uh, competitor Carl Reed lost his grandmother last or recently in the last couple of days. So just want to send the best out to Carl Reed, former guest of the show. Best out to him and uh, his family um, in obviously tough times. I, I'm not sure. If it had any, I don't think it had anything to do with the coronavirus, but uh, yeah, no, it was not coronavirus related, but yeah, it was okay. very but sad that he either that's neither here nor there. It's just, uh, yeah, best out to his family. Um, now you, uh, you, you, uh, obviously have close relations to, to some of the MMA world in the South Carolina, uh, part of the world over there or the country. Um, have you had any contact with those guys, uh, whether it's, uh, uh, Carl or or Steven or any um, are there is there any kind of frustration that's starting to build up with these guys as far as looking for a fight or um, being so stagnant? I haven't heard anybody, you know, since all the promotions are shut down. I haven't heard anybody complaining about not being able to find a fight. And the people that I know uh, locally all have some way to train. They're either you know like Steven, they literally own a gym so he's able to train there he trains with his dad so i mean you can't get much safer than that because you yeah. literally live with a guy so going to hit pads with him doesn't increase the risk for either person mm -hmm. um you know and and um carl you know be like doing a lot of running swimming stuff like that there's stuff that they're doing outside the gym to try to stay in shape um i've heard more complaints from gym owners and uh people who run promotions as a significant portion of their income you know, mm -hmm. they're they're more concerned about, you know, what do we do? Do we shutter their promotion to try to avoid bleeding money and maybe try to sell off our cage or get rid yeah. of our uh, training equipment? Well, there's still a huge market for it. Cause, and if you want to sell used sports equipment, boy, this is a great time to do it because you can't buy it, you know, from the from the typical retailers. So people are having to make some really difficult decisions. And unfortunately, we've already lost. Uh, regionally, I know of at least one BJJ gym in North Carolina, uh, actually in Charlotte, that decided that they, they weren't going to be able to survive this and closed their gym. Uh, right. There's been a couple of other more distant affiliates that I've I've heard rumors of that have shut their doors. And there's probably dozens, if not hundreds of others that I just don't know about that have decided that they, they can't do this. And unfortunately, it's going to 
probably uh, be hardest for people who used to have a BJJ gym as their second job and then sometime in the relatively recent past decided they were going to try to do it full time. And this just hit them at that time where they're not making a whole lot of money to begin with and they don't have a job to fall back on. There's just no no uh, no reserve financially to be able to make it through this. So I think those are the people that are the, the biggest risk of, of having a serious problem. Yeah. No, we had uh, John Burke on, and we kind of talked about that too. I mean, like a lot of folks, uh, a lot of folks are 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 struggling. Actually, it's funny you mentioned the thing about getting the summons. I I know a local guy that got one because he kept trying during the beginning of this, and uh, that was kind of the cue to my instructor that he was like, "Whoa!" He's like, "Yeah, we're not going to screw around." So uh, we're all we're all just waiting it out. Um, the talking about the MMA side of things. Uh, I mean, this is random. I mean, because we're coming close to the end of time here, but. Uh, with the matchup of Justin Gaethje and uh, Tony Ferguson, we got to get a, a prediction. I mean, let's throw all the uh, the numbers and dangers aside. If the fight happens, who do you got, Dr. Lucas? So um, I think the most important thing about that matchup is it's going to help us figure out which half of the uh, Ferguson-Khabib is actually cursed or whether it's just <laughs> the two of them together. And Unfortunately, I think that Tony is probably the half that's most cursed because, I mean, he did ruin his knee tripping over a wire. That's that's definitely kind of curse worthy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So in the if this fight does actually happen, I I like Tony in this fight. I think that he's probably going to end up winning the fight um, probably in the later rounds. Um, One one thing that that I I have to say, it, it it. the fact that they're still going to try to have that fight happen soon, um, I feel like it benefits Justin Gaethje because now he's got a little more time to be ready versus the short notice that he was going to have. And then, you know, usually when you hear somebody with a leg injury like that, I feel like he's going to target his legs. I mean, obviously he targets everyone's legs, but, you know, uh, I feel like he's probably he's more susceptible to losing that way too. But, I mean, I'm always I'm a Justin Gaethje fan, so you can't go by me. But, um. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You got anything on that, Matt? I know we were kind of, I just, I, I, I'm just not so sold. We're going to see an event until mm-hmm. I, I mean, I can't get excited for it. I, um, I didn't think the last one was going to go down. Um, said that for weeks on here. Yeah. Uh, we hoped it would because we were looking for some entertainment. Uh, but our, I think all our hearts and our brains kind of knew that it wasn't really going to go down. Um, I just don't see this. I thought the announcement of the event, like, I mean, hours after the other one, got canceled um i i it to me it just seems like it's it's dana white in the ufc trying to keep their name in the news um mm. and if you just keep making events and all of a sudden you know the cards get stat more stacked and more loaded with with all this talent comes out that the talent's not even alerted that they're supposed to be fighting um i don't think contracts are signed for a lot of the fights i mean i don't know i don't know this for fact but you 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 see reports of of people not aware that they were even fighting. And then you see people agreeing yeah. to fights after it was announced and, and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, common sense tells you that this is just uh, somebody reaching into a hat and pulling names out and, and doing it. Um, I, I do like the angle that this could possibly lead to less weight cutting. Um, and, and I think it could open up the door to that. I saw Dana White for some reason say that catch weight fights don't mean as much. I mean, I don't, I don't fall into that category. To me, if they fight five pounds over what they normally would fight after, as long as they're at the same weight, it's two of the same weighted dudes fighting each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, but I just can't get excited about it. Uh, 
I think Florida could do it. Um, I said, I think on the show last week that uh, it wasn't just WWE that was considered essential. It was basically kind of, there was a whole sports category to the way that that, I guess that that rule was written. So um, UFC could have in theory been in Florida for the last, having events three times a week for the last month. Um, But they, they did either weren't aware of that or uh, just, didn't choose to go that route. So, but I just can't get excited about it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I want to see the fight, but I, until I hear, uh, it, until it starts, um, I guess. And then the whole pay-per-view thing, I, I, I I'm having a hard time. I, I said that on the show too, that trying to explain to people that are hungry for a fight, how to order right now through ESPN plus. And, um, if they don't have, you know, like I said, my uncle doesn't have a, a smart TV, so he has to get a fire stick. And then, <laughs> I mean, all of a sudden it becomes $150 yeah. to order a pay-per-view. Yep. Yeah. Who's we got that no, money? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I'd rather you have to be an engineer to do it. So. <laughs> yeah. And if, and if, and if we, uh, if we get to, if we we're looking at a card like this, they're throwing out this card to me, that card could be split up to about three nights of entertainment. Why don't we just put it on ESPN on a, you know, Monday, Thursday, Saturday or something and, and have, five, you know, five fight cards over, over three nights of the week or something. It seems to me ESPN can make plenty of money with that. So I don't know, mm-hmm. but uh, until I hear somebody like John say the fights are going down and this is real, I just, I just can't believe it. So to sort of piggyback over a couple of things, Matt said, I agree. I think that it's unlikely that that event is going to happen as planned, but uh, you know, Dana White is a pretty smart guy. He's a really good, I think, businessman. And I think that's one of the reasons why he keeps throwing this out. Like you said, it's free advertising because ESPN's talking about this is going to happen. It keeps people interested. And just as importantly, with the way the contracts are written between the UFC and WME and ESPN, it's going to be helpful when it comes time to the end of the year and they haven't done as many pay-per-views as they're supposed to have done for Dana White to be able to say, hey, look, we tried everything possible. We tried this island. We tried doing it on Indian land and you guys were the ones that came to us and said, you can't do it. So now you can't enforce that financial part of the contract. Yeah. So I think that it's a, you know, it's a no lose situation for him. If he's watching, and I assume, you know, you guys are so popular. It's pretty much a given that Dana White probably watches <laughs> your podcast religiously, right? Yeah, yeah. I, would, I would encourage him to consider um, stepping back from the, the sport aspect of the, of the, you know, the rankings and things like that for a period of time and just get some fights on pay-per-view, which is probably going to be easier to do. So I would use the same methodology they've used for the, um, the, the ultimate fighter is consider them to be exhibitions. They're not going to actually be on people's events, but take some mid tier guys that want some work and get two of them out to Las Vegas and let them train at the performance Institute for a week and then have them fight and then send them home and then have two other people come and have them fight at the end and then send them home. And that had, that had greatly reduced the number of people that need to be available for that. I mean, he's got in-house medical staff, you know, Dr. Davidson is right there in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. He's got all the, the pieces parts he would need to have that happen. And then once you've got three or four of those fights together, then bingo, you've got a little pay-per-view you can put out on ESPN. Um, I would of course advocate for free, but that's probably yeah. not going to happen, but for <laughs> some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of content of something that's new that people can tune in for and keep people's interest up and, uh, I think that kind of thing would be very easy to do. And once they've done that for a couple, three weeks or even a month and no one has gotten coronavirus from it, it it'd be an easy way for him to then start leaning on his political uh, 
friends in Nevada, probably in particular, and say, hey, look, this has gone fine, so why don't we have an actual live event at the Performance Institute and then kind of come back in that direction? I feel like Ed's heard that before, that idea. Yeah. <laughs> I think you might have heard that through this podcast. I, no, yeah. I think I, like last week I said the exact same thing. Use the yeah. exhibition format. It doesn't have to go public record. Uh, get younger fighters who it doesn't necessarily matter if it's on their pro record or not. They're just looking for some action. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I think that that was the way to do it yeah. all along. I think this idea of having, you know, 15 Hall of Famers on a card is, uh, is, is optimistic at best. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I got one more question that's not MMA related, but it's kind of a hot topic uh, around here as far as uh, the, the virus again. Um, from a doctor, t- tell me what the deal is with masks. Um, I was always <laughs> under the impression that the mask was to be worn by the person that has the symptoms and is sick. And it basically stop. It helps them from projecting their fluids or the virus from them out to other people that when I go, when I would go to a urgent care or whatever, that was kind of always the situation. Um, it, we were told that that was the case and then we don't need to wear masks. And now it's basically mandatory everywhere I go uh, in my County out here that I have it on. Um, what is the actual medical stance uh, for, for wearing masks in a time like this? So, you know, masks are, there's basically three different, types of masks and it kind of depends which one you have on. So there's the 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 Mac Daddy of masks, the N95 or M99 masks that um, are the ones that um, they usually have the 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 two straps that uh, are usually elastic and uh, they're typically the harder ones to breathe through because the filtering is much greater and those uh, are the ones that like if I had to go into a room with a patient that was known to have coronavirus, that would be part of the PPE for that would be wearing an N95 mask. So those can help protect the person wearing them from inhaling the, the droplets um, from somebody sneezing or coughing or even talking to you. Now, out in the community, unless you're right face to face with somebody when they sneeze or cough or you're really close to them, you're more likely to pick up the virus by touching something like a keypad or a railing or a shopping cart handle that somebody that has coronavirus has aerosolized near, and then you're going to pick it up from the contact. And then when you touch your face or touch your nose, you then infect yourself. So the N95 mask out in public won't protect you from that, but having everybody else wearing a mask, makes it less likely they're contaminating surfaces heavily with their aerosol. So that's where the sort of the regular medical masks come in is they're very good at preventing people from aerosolizing their sneezes or aerosolizing when they talk to you. And then the last are sort of the homemade masks and they're not necessarily homemade, but fabric masks. So like, you know, Origin Maine has buffs that you can buy that are meant to be coronavirus masks or lots of parents include, or lots of people, including my mom have made some fabric masks that you wear, and, and those are entirely to prevent you from accidentally seeding other people with the virus by coughing, sneezing, and things like that. But the you may have seen there's a couple of videos floating around of people spraying aerosols through the fabric masks, and quite a bit of the aerosol makes it through because, I mean, you can hold the mask up to light and see that there's little gaps between the fabric. So they're not perfect, but the whole idea is to try to reduce the amount of aerosol that you're producing because the less that is sitting on surfaces the less likely to somebody else will pick it up so the idea behind the the regulations or the suggestion so here in south carolina is just a suggestion you don't have to wear a mask when you're out in public um but a lot of people myself included i think most medical people are just to try to model the 
quote unquote best practices. The idea behind that is if if I contract coronavirus and don't have any symptoms, if I'm out getting coffee, going to the grocery store, seeing patients in the office without a mask on, it's way more likely that I'm going to contaminate my environment, my coworkers and my patients than it is if I'm wearing a mask. Yeah. So, I mean, it's uh, and, and here in the Northeast in Jersey, you have to wear one if you're going inside of like any gro- supermarket or any place where people are going to be at. It seems like it's more of a, and it, it's hard. It seems like it's asking people to be considerate of your fellow man. And that's super rare here in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, I, I actually do it because I care about my parents and other people and stuff like that. So I keep one in my pocket. If I go in a store, I put it on, you know, just to, to kind of not, 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 uh, you know, I, I, I happen to be, one of the rarities that are considerate of other people's, but uh, not a a popular train of thought. (laughs) That's been my biggest concern about this whole uh, pandemic since, I mean, the original, when we first heard that it sort of escaped for lack of a better term from escape from China and started spreading to other countries. I thought, Oh my God, this is going to decimate my patient population of kids that have congenital heart disease and in particular NICU graduates. And then when we learned that it seems like for reasons that we don't fully understand, kids are kind of protected from this. My biggest concern shifted to, I hope I don't get it and accidentally infect my parents or the parents or grandparents of one of my kids, you know, because I am seeing patients in the office like normal and wearing the mask is the best thing you can do to try to minimize that. And then a lot of places, some uh, employers in most hospital systems, including ours, have started doing things to reduce the number of people who are in the facility overall. So like if you if if one of you all went to be seen in one of our clinics, they would take your temperature at the door and then give you a mask as long as you're not febrile. But your wife or your mom or dad or your buddy or whoever that would normally accompany to your visit can't come with you. And with kids, they're only allowing one adult to accompany to their visits to try to cut down on the number of people who are coming into the facility overall. And they're doing the same thing with employees. When I go into work every morning, they check my temperature. They ask you the questions, you know, if you've been to any uh, uh, endemic areas recently, you have a cough, that kind of thing. And then they give us a mask and we're expected to wear the mask whenever we're in common areas to try to cut down on the potential transmission from uh, employee to employee or healthcare worker to healthcare worker, and then more importantly, in my eyes, from from a healthcare worker to a potentially at-risk person. Yeah, and we're winding down here, but you met, I, I got to ask because it hits me a little bit personal, but you mentioned the uh, the NICU situation and, and young children. Uh, anybody who's followed me knows that my niece is kind of the poster girl for, uh, for NICU miracles. Uh, she has obviously lung issues that'll be with her for her whole life. You wouldn't know uh, because she's a, a little maniac, but uh, um, it, it's uh how how has that worked? Uh, is there is there a lot of numbers or stats that show that kids that maybe were are uh, are vulnerable have been uh, uh, around the virus to that so and the, it hasn't affected them? It's it's not immediately clear that there has been kids that are potentially vulnerable that have that have been affected but not or have been infected but not significantly affected. But there's a couple of statistics that I do know. One of them is around the world, there has, at least as of yesterday, which is the last time I looked, there was no case reports of any children with congenital heart disease succumbing to coronavirus, which is miraculous because a lot of our patients have wildly low oxygen saturations at rest because their cardiac anatomy is so abnormal. So I thought for sure they would be prone. And then the NICU folks, as of last week when I talked to them, said they had not seen 
a, a lot of alarm from other countries or within the U.S. of NICUs or NICU graduates being overly affected. But there's a couple of potential reasons for that. So as you probably know from your niece, NICU parents usually take the same precautions that we're advising for everybody for their NICU babies for the first year or two of their life because of this thing called respiratory syncytial virus, which is a very common virus in the community that, that's devastating for babies that were particularly born premature or babies that have congenital heart disease. So a lot of our NICU graduates, they have even on their, like their, um, their car seat, they have a little sign, little stop sign that says, stop, don't touch me and stay certain, you know, certain number of feet away. Parents are very good about putting some sort of buff over the car seat when they're in medical settings and they'll ask, Family members who come to their house, you know, are you sick? Have you had a fever? Make sure you wash your hands. They won't let them hold the baby. So they, they already do all the sort of social distancing things. So it's it's probably a combination of NICU parents already doing the social distancing and, and infection control practices we would want them to do for coronavirus because of the existence of RSV. And there's probably something intrinsic to re the coronavirus that makes young kids in particular less prone to have problems with it. All right. I mean, uh, I mean, that's a lot to take in, but, uh, thanks for Thanks. I really do appreciate you making time to come on. If you, um, if you have any last minute shout outs or plugs that you want to do before Matt takes us out, uh, the floor is yours, Doc Lucas. No, I think I'm good. Just uh, like you kind of hit out a second ago, you know, the, the social distancing and wearing a mask out in public isn't necessarily to help you. It's to help other people. So, you know, take those steps seriously and don't be the reason why you kill somebody else's grandma. Well, there, there it is, right there. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll get lucky, and a unicorn will be invented out of this uh, China next, and uh, and we can go from there. But uh, all right, fans can follow us at Combat Hour on Twitter, Coast to Coast Combat Hour on Instagram, myself at MMA Hawk Twenty One on Twitter and Instagram. Follow Ed at Carbazal on Twitter and Carbeerzal on Instagram. Uh, Doctor John Lucas, thank you for joining us. Ed, uh, always a good time, and. Uh, Look forward to next week. Peace, y'all. See you later. Hey, y'all. East Coast Ed here. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can be a monthly supporter for as little as 99 cents a month. This podcast will always be free, but if you help Matt and I out for future episodes, supporters will be shouted out on the show and large supporters will be randomly selected to do predictions for a big pay-per-view event in the future. So please click the support tab and enjoy the show.